Well, as you can see, in anticipation of the cold weather, I decided to grow out my winter beard. And um, as I've let it grow for the last week or so, um, I'm always shocked and surprised at the amount of gray that I already have in my beard. But uh, it's a bit of a Rip Van Winkle look that I have going on. And uh, to motivate me, I actually reread the story of Rip Van Winkle this week. If you're not familiar with it, it's a great little story, short story of a man named Rip Van Winkle who went out squirrel hunting one day and ended up drinking a little more than he should have of a drink he didn't know what it was. He ended up falling asleep and he slept unknowingly for 20 years. It's a powerful drink. And then when he woke up, at first he didn't realize he had been sleeping for so long, even though there were certain signs around him that things weren't quite the same as when he had fallen asleep. For example, his beard grew to be about a foot long and it was quite grayed. His hunting rifle that he took with him had been rusted. His dog was missing. And then when he left the mountains to go back into the village in which he lived, he discovered there too that things were quite a bit different. There were buildings he didn't remember that were now there. His clothes in comparison to the other people were quite old-fashioned old -fashioned, and nobody recognized him. Rip Van Winkle was out of place, but he didn't know why. What once seemed familiar to him was now very strange. And for many Christians today, we are having a similar experience. We are modern day Rip Van Winkles. Although we've not been asleep for 20 years, we're just now coming to the realization that the world around us is not the world we once knew. It's not the world we thought we lived in. It's not the world we want to live in. But here we are. In our rapidly changing culture, Christians are increasingly viewed as weird, as unnecessary, and among some, Christians are viewed even as harmful. Things like freedom of religion and freedom of speech were once regarded as absolute rights, but now they're being challenged. You can lose your job for expressing certain ideas, especially Christian ideas. All of that to say culture is drastically different than the world many of us, many of you grew up in, and it's likely to get worse before it gets better. So the question this morning that I want to ask is, what do we do about it? Or what can we do about it? This morning we're going to continue our short three-part series reminding us of our priorities here at Grace. As you know, our vision is that when you stand before the Lord, our vision for you is that Jesus will look you in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And our mission, the way we are trying to prepare you for that day, is summarized in those three words, equip, engage, exalt. Equip you with the truth, so you go engage people with the gospel, and then we gather together to exalt God with one another. But Last week, we focused on that idea of equip. Today, we're going to focus on this idea of engaging people with the gospel. And to do that, I want you to open your Bible up to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> as you open up to Romans chapter 1, I want to invite you as well to grab your outline there in your bulletin. And there's, there are three things we're going to do together this morning. Number one, before we get in Romans, 
we're going to talk about some of the problems of the culture then in the first century Roman context as well as now in our context. Then number two on your outline, we're going to look at Romans chapter one and see the solution. The solution to the problems is the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel then in the first century world and the power of the gospel now. And then number three on your outline, we're going to talk about some very practical ways to connect those ideas, the problems of the culture and the power of the gospel as we go engage people with the gospel here in 2024. Now, again, number one on your outline, let's talk for a few moments about the problems of the culture then, first century, as well as now. So Paul is writing this book, the book of Romans, to a church living in the midst of a very pagan culture. Uh, Rome, in many ways, was a moral sewer. And for Christians living in the first century in Rome, there were many things in the culture that were at odds with their faith. And I want to share with you just a few things that I think would have been detestable for Christians living in the first century in Rome. The first one, first kind of detestable thing going on in the culture of Rome is the one with which we're the most familiar, and that is crucifixion. Right in the church, we're very familiar with the crucifixion because of Jesus' crucifixion, but when you really take a step back and think about crucifixion, crucifixion is one of the most cruel forms of capital punishment ever thought of. I mean, people were nailed to a cross, nails driven through their hands and through their feet, and in the case of Jesus, beaten even beforehand, and uh, death was Something that, that, that came through extreme suffering, extreme exhaustion and thirst often came upon the person. Death was painful and slow, sometimes taking two or three days for the person to die, unless, of course, the soldiers mercifully broke your legs, and you, then you would die quicker. But crucifixion was a detestable practice of the Roman world, another detestable practice of, of the Roman world, another one with which we're very familiar are the gladiatorial games. Again, we're familiar with this because of, of movies like The Gladiator, and, and, um, but ho Hollywood has popularized these ideas. But I want you to take a moment, really step back, and think what it would have been like to go to a gladiatorial contest. To see people, yes, many prisoners, but to see prisoners and slaves forced to fight one another to the death or eaten alive by wild animals, all for the entertainment of the crowds. A third detestable practice of the Roman world that was very common was the murder of unwanted children. If you had a child you didn't want, it was very common to just leave that child outside. Imagine leaving a child outside in the frigid cold that we're experiencing today. These children would be left outside and they would often starve to death or be dehydrated to the point of death, exposure to the elements, or again, eaten alive by wild animals. A fourth detestable practice that was common in the Roman world, uh, you could just say the sexual ethics of the first century Roman world. Sex in the first century certainly wasn't about marriage. 
or love or even romance, but in many ways, sex in the first century world was about power. And powerful Roman men took whom they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. Sex, especially among powerful Roman men, uh, could be had with women or men or even children. Prostitution was common. Pedophilia was common. The sexual ethic of the Roman world was at odds with the Christian faith. Number five, the Romans took gluttony to a whole new level. According to Seneca, there were certain Roman parties where the rich especially would gorge themselves on amazing food and they would fill themselves to the point that they couldn't eat anymore, but then they would intentionally induce vomiting just to free up space so they could eat again and then their slaves were forced to clean it all up. Another detestable practice of Rome. These are just a few examples, by the way. You could go on and on about the warped ethics and morality of the first century world. That was then and this is now. So what about today? When you look at our culture, come to think of it, we're not all that different from Rome, are we? probably seen the you know videos on TikTok or whatever of, of women who go to their husbands and say how often do you think of the Roman Empire there's all kinds of parallels uh, between then and now with one very significant difference and to explain that difference I actually want to invite you to come down here to the table and let's think about this and by the way for the scholars in the room I am pulling together ideas from uh, Charles Taylor in A Secular Age, and combining that with a lot of stuff from Francis Schaeffer, and then also Carl Truman in his book, uh, Strange New World and the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But think about this. So if you're alive in, let's say, the Old Testament era, if you're living in the land of Israel, there were for you to choose a multitude of gods. And so here on the table, I have... Uh, Baal or Baal. And so Baal or Baal might have been one of the gods that you worshipped if you lived in the Old Testament era. Baal, the god of uh, fertility and of the storm. Or you might have chosen at different times Asherah. You're probably familiar with Asherah, Asherah poles that you see in the Old Testament. Asherah was a Canaanite goddess. Or another example, you might have worshipped uh, Dagon, the Philistine god. And um, any of these um, gods, Dagon, by the way, he has a tendency of falling face down, if you're familiar with the story. But um, all of these gods, you could have chosen from them to worship. But what I want you to understand is that for basically everybody in the Old Testament, theism, not capital T, but lowercase t, theism was very common. People believed in gods or a god. And um, it was very common, and you believed that the gods were involved in your daily life. And then come the Israelites, and they proclaim truthfully that they are worshipers of the one true God. All these other gods, there's really nothing there. They are the worshipers of the one true God, and they encourage the nations around them to worship the one true God. That's the Old Testament era. Then we come to the New Testament era, and it's very much the same. The gods are different. But uh, if you're living in the New Testament era, the era into which the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans, of course you have Caesar. Caesar himself was proclaimed to be a god and worshipped as a god. 
Uh, here you have Pan. If you know the story of, of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, Pan was worshipped heavily there. Um, you have Artemis or Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, there's a big temple to Artemis there in Ephesus. And this is Demeter or Ceres, a goddess of agriculture often found in Corinth. But these gods were worshipped all over the Roman Empire. And again, not only were these gods worshipped, but they believed, the Romans believed and the Greeks before them, that these gods were involved in the daily affairs of your life. And so if you were planting or harvesting, you might make prayers or sacrifices to Demeter. If you were struggling with infertility, you might uh, worship uh, Diana or Artemis. And um, all the different Greek and Roman gods have certain aspects involved in the daily life of the people. And so actually, Old and New Testament have a lot in common because throughout it, people believe that gods existed and the gods were involved in your daily life. But then we come to this place on the table that represents our modern day. And secular man, modern man, notice, has completely removed any notion of God or gods from the table. Uh, Nietzsche, of course, famously said, God is dead, right? And so modern man has tried to completely remove the idea from God, even within the fabric of our society. The problem is, you can't just remove God from the table. You can't have an empty table. And so modern man might think that he's atheistic, that he doesn't believe in a God, but you actually can't do that. And so in the place of God, we've actually put something else. We've unknowingly put something else on the table without even knowing it. And what we put on the table in the place of God is actually ourselves. We have removed God from the conversation, but you can't leave a vacuum on the table. Something has to be there. And what's taken place in our secular society is we put ourselves there. And so now God, capital G, or lowercase g, gods, no longer provide really the fabric of our society, but instead we put ourselves there. And so now man, unsurprisingly then, is the standard of ethics and morality in life. And Francis Schaeffer gets into this quite a bit. He talks about how ultimately one of three things is going to take place. Number one is you fall into absolute hedonism. There are no rules. Everybody does what is right in his own eyes and ultimately what may, brings you the most pleasure. And we see a little bit of that in our culture, don't we? The second thing Francis Schaeffer says will come as a result is ultimately just the majority rule. So whatever the majority of people say is right becomes right and whatever the majority of the people say is wrong becomes wrong, but that's ever-changing, ever-shifting, and we see that taking place in our society. The third thing Francis Schaeffer says, uh, this is the church in the 20, 21st century, he writes, um, that is that ultimately it's the elite that determine that. Not necessarily the rich or the powerful, but a small group of people who scream the loudest, and they are the ones now who define what is right and what is wrong. And again, we see that taking place in our culture, don't we? And so my point is, you can't have a blank space on the table. Something has to feel, fill that vacuum. And in our secular age, we now 
are in God's place on the table. And as a result, what you see, again, is a changing morality and ethical framework. The complete foundation of the society falls apart. There are certain things in our culture that are permissible and even celebrated today that would not have been mentioned only a few decades ago because we've removed God and our sense, our, our foundational um, part of our society, we've removed him off the table. We do things today that would even make the Romans blush. <laughs> These are all problems in our culture, but there's even a bigger problem that I want to propose to you this morning. The biggest problem we see is we see a church that's paralyzed in fear. A church that doesn't know what to do with the rapidly changing culture in which we live. We are modern day Rip Van Winkles. We're stuck many ways in the past, living in a changing world and we don't know what has happened. So if that's the problem, number one on your outline, what's the solution? What do we do? What can we do? Well, let's take a look at number two on your outline as we look at Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. This is the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem in the first century and the solution to the problem in our culture as well. Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. Paul speaking into the pagan culture of Rome, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17 are really the theme verses of the entire book of Romans. Let's take a look at the details again. Verse 16. Paul, knowing the culture into which he's speaking, says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. When you think about it, humanly speaking, Paul had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel. Humanly speaking. First, as we've already discussed, Rome was immersed in a cultural ethic that was absolutely opposed to Christianity. It would have been tough to be a Christian proclaiming the gospel in Rome, and yet Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Secondly, Paul, by nationality, was a Jew, a race that many Romans considered to be subhuman. And yet Paul stepped into that culture and he wasn't ashamed to preach the gospel. Third, the gospel that Paul preached was considered to be foolishness by the Roman Gentiles. This message that a once dead but now resurrected Jewish man is the savior of the world. Such unbelievable claims made the gospel laughable to many Romans, but Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel. Fourth, Paul had regularly suffered because of the gospel. He had been imprisoned, beaten, mocked, run out of town. There were several times throughout the ministry of the apostle Paul that he could have pulled back in shame and in fear, but 
Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel. Why wasn't Paul ashamed to preach the gospel? Indeed, why was Paul excited to preach the gospel? Well, notice what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's not ashamed to preach the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God for salvation. That word salvation and the word save in the book of Romans is used in a few different ways. Sometimes it's used to describe God's deliverance from present wrath. Other times it's used to describe God's deliverance from future wrath, and both are true. That the gospel saves us not only from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin and ultimately the presence of sin. There's a past element, a present element, and a future element to our salvation. In the past, we're declared righteous. Our sins are forgiven. In the present, more and more, the the gospel can help us to be freed from the, uh, the, the, the power of sin in our life. And ultimately, one day, God will deliver us from the very presence of sin. The gospel saves people, Paul says, and notice, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This isn't a message that's only reserved for a few privileged few, but it's for all. For all who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then notice what he says in verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Here Paul is quoting from the book of Habakkuk showing how this righteousness he's talking about is ultimately given to us by faith. It's not by anything we do. It's not by any merit of our own, but it's simply by faith. And I want you to notice as well that phrase, the righteousness of God. This is a a huge phrase that Paul uses in the book of Romans. It's jam-packed with meaning. Sometimes it's used to describe God's saving activity. He's a righteous God who saves. Sometimes it's used to describe God's righteous character himself. He himself is righteous. And then at other times, it's used to describe the judicial verdict that God declares on people who believe. You are declared righteous. And Paul's going to unpack that phrase throughout the book of Romans, but all three are certainly true. But there's one word I skipped over that I really want you to take note of, and it's there in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The power of God. Now, being all-powerful, God could have looked at what we have done and just wiped us all out. But instead, God being all-powerful chose a different route. He instead chose to give us, to give the church, this good news of salvation, and he sent the gospel of Jesus into the world through which we can be saved. This is the power of God, Paul says here. And even facing the problems of the Roman world, And for us, as we face even the problems of our own culture, Paul is confident 
in the power of the gospel. Paul's confidence, I assure you, was not in himself. It was not in his eloquence of speech. It was not in his theological training. It was not in the fact that he went to Dallas Seminary. He didn't. But Paul's confidence was in the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's confidence was in the power of this very simple message. This simple message was more powerful than any of the scary things going on in the Roman culture. It's the power of God, Paul says. This simple message that God has entrusted to us to share with people. Listen, each and every week I share the gospel here in this room. And I do it for really two reasons. Number one is because there may be somebody here, somebody watching online who doesn't know Jesus. And I want you uh, to consider who he is and to put your faith in him. And that's the only way you're saved. But the second reason I share the gospel week in and week out is for you, for Christians, for the church, so that you can see truly how easy this message is to tell. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but he resurrected to new life. And this resurrected one offers to anyone who believes, Paul says, uh, the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. All you have to do, all you can do, is to accept that gift through faith. So my two questions this, this morning is, number one, do you believe it? Have you put your faith in Jesus? If not, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation to put your faith in him. If you do believe, then my question for you is, do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do you believe that it still has the power to impact people even in our culture today? Or have we unknowingly embraced kind of this secular worldview that the gospel is not enough. We've moved the gospel off the table. We've moved Jesus off the table. And so to give you some practical ways to grow, because we all need to grow in being convinced of the power of the gospel then and now, let's take a look at number three on your outline as we Consider some very practical ways to go engage people in this culture with the power of the gospel. But it does begin with that question. Do we believe that the gospel is enough? Do we believe that God is still actively involved in the affairs of our culture, seeking to bring people to himself? Or have we embraced a secular view of God, a deistic view of God, that he's just created the watch, has stepped back, and watching, is now watching it all unfold? No. We still believe in the power of the gospel, that God is still actively working to save people and take them from darkness to light. But there are a few ways I want to propose to you that we've believed the lie how we have unknowingly embraced a secular worldview, the mirror on the table. So let me share with you a few lies that I think I have believed, and I would ask you to consider whether or not you have believed. When we consider going out and sharing our faith 
a first lie that we might believe is that you're just going to make a fool of yourself. You won't be able to answer all the questions that someone may ask. And this lie has sidelined many Christians from sharing their faith. And so let me teach you a great phrase. If someone asks you a question, if you're sharing your faith, somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, here's what you say. That's a great question. I don't know the answer. But let's keep our focus on Jesus right now. My point is you don't have to know all the answers to the great apologetic questions. There's a time and a place for that. But just keep pointing people to Jesus. I love what Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, said. Soul winners are not soul winners because of what they know, but because of who they know and how much they want others to know him. So don't believe the lie that you have to know all the answers before you can share your faith. A second lie we often believe is that people are just going to be offended. You might lose a friend. You might even lose your job. Now, I will say, for many Christians throughout time and history, that actually has been true. There have been many Christians who have been persecuted for, for their faith. There have been Christians who um, have lost their job or lost a friend because of their faith. But the lie is this, is that it happens all the time. When you really look statistically, it's actually a very rare occurrence. There, it's more often that when you present the gospel with gentleness and respect, people are actually willing to listen. And many of them appreciate the fact that you love them enough to actually say something to them. But even worst case scenario, suppose you do lose their friendship or even your job. From an eternal standpoint, it's worth it. There's a long line of, of Christians who have suffered because of proclaiming their faith. A third lie we believe is that people are not approachable, they're not interested, and so you're just wasting your time. Again, there may be people, there are people who aren't interested. But every single day, there are thousands of people who put their faith in Jesus. So why not be a part of that story? And when you look at some generational trends going on right now, there's actually some very exciting stuff going on generationally. When you look at millennials and Gen Zs, two generations that often kind of have a bad rap uh, in the church, when you actually look at millennials and Gen Zs, there's an increasing interest among them in the gospel. An increasing interest among them in the gospel. And the really encouraging thing you see is that those who do put their faith in Jesus, those who do embrace Christianity, their roots grow very, very, very deep. They are not interested in Christianity light. But they are all in on their faith, and you see this reflected in their serving, in their giving, and in their evangelistic heart. This is all actually really exciting stuff. So yes, some people may not be interested, but many people are. So don't believe the lie. The fourth lie that I've believed, that many of us have believed, is that you have to build a relationship with someone before they will listen. This idea of friendship evangelism, right? Now, that's certainly not what you see when you read, like, the book of Acts. You don't see a bunch of Christians saying, well, I know I have the opportunity to preach the gospel, but I'm going to wait until the right time, until I think they're actually going to listen. No, you see this army of Christians in the New Testament boldly proclaiming the gospel no matter what. People to complete strangers. 
My concern is that we have a lot of Christians who spend 20 years building a friendship, but they never actually get around to sharing the gospel. Listen, being someone's friend is not going to get them into heaven. And so I've embraced the lie that I have to wait until the right time. No, make today the right time. Today's the right time. And if you've got somebody that you love, that you've been praying for, you've been wanting to share the gospel, I would encourage you the next time you see them, just say that. Say, listen, there's something that's been on my heart for several years. And up to this point, I've been, I've been afraid to talk to you about this, but will you just hear me out for just a few minutes and then lead into the gospel? Get there before it's too late. But listen, at the end of the day, here's the, the biggest thing I want you to remember. The greatest truth from this morning is that the gospel is still powerful enough to save people, to take them from darkness to light. And God, who loves them more than you do, is preparing them for that conversation. Remember in the Great Commission, the words of Jesus, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The one who has commissioned us is with us, and he's preparing those to hear the gospel. God does the preparing. God does the saving. You're just the voice. So those are some lies I don't want you to believe, but what are some things I'm asking you to do this morning? If you're, if you're uh, convicted as I am, listen, this is convicting to me too, that for 20, in 2024 you want to be more bold in your faith, let me give you a couple real specific ways in which you can do that. Number one is right here at Grace Bible Church. We have several ministries. I'll mention two specifically, our Grace Kids Ministry, our Grace Student Ministry. There's more people, statistically speaking, who come to faith in their, uh, in their youth and in their, as a child than any other stage in life. And we have great opportunities week in and week out right here at Grace for you to serve in our kids' ministry and our student ministry and to share with these people, these young people, the future generations, the future leaders of the world, for you to share with them about who Jesus is. Number two, if you're looking to get outside the walls of the church, we have some great local ministry partners. Uh, we're partnered with an organization like Blast, where we have a group of people go and they share the gospel in a public school. In a public school, they get to go and share the gospel with elementary school students. Uh, we have our Take Heart ministry right here at Grace that meets right here where young single moms and, and, and dads and their children come in and there's an opportunity there to preach the gospel to them. Um, where's Brian? There's Brian Roy. Brian Roy uh, is, is uh, with, with uh, Mercy Street. If you're not familiar with Mercy Street, Mercy Street is a great organization that uses sports and mentoring uh, in order to share the gospel with, with kids. And I encourage you to get plugged in with them as well. Casa de Lago is another opportunity. Listen, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have great ministry partnerships in place, opportunities for you to jump in, get involved, and make an immediate impact. Number three, I would encourage you to sign up for our next Gospel Conversations training that TS will offer. It's scheduled for March the 9th. In this training, not only will you be equipped with some great tools, but you'll actually go out knocking door to door. The great opportunities for you to uh, learn how to share the Gospel and take that wisdom and apply it practically. Number four, I'd encourage you to get to know some of our missionaries our local partners, just hear their stories and help it encourage you and see how you might partner with them and come alongside them. 
But to summarize it all together there on the back side of your outline, your one thing for this week is this. I'm going to do this. I want you to do this. To make a list of five people with whom you want to share the gospel in 2024. Pray over that list regularly. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be working in their heart and then most importantly, go engage. Actually take that next step of saying, this is the year that I'm going to share the gospel with this person because I love them. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you. We live in a fallen world, a fallen culture. We have since Genesis chapter 3. But I'm not going to lie to you. The power of the gospel is more than anything our culture and our world can combat it with. We have the power of the gospel working with us, and the gospel will work. I love what the great evangelist D.L. Moody once said. He said, the gospel is like a lion. All you have to do is open the door of the cage and get out of the way. The gospel is like a lion. All you have to do is open the cage and get out of the way. So Grace Bible Church, let's let the lion out of the cage. And let's go engage people with the gospel this year. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, I confess the fear that I often have of sharing the greatest message you could possibly share. I confess at times that I'm ashamed of the very gospel that saved me and the only gospel that can save anyone. Father, I confess at times my mouth is silent when it needs to speak out the good news of who Jesus is. Father, I confess how easy it is to just fall back in fear when we should simply believe in the power of the gospel that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Father, help us. Give us that faith to believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus. Help us to look on with love in the people in our world who are literally dying to know that there is a Savior. Father, give us the opportunity, give us the courage to give people a reason for the hope that is within us. And Father, I pray that in this year, in 2024, you would send out an army of people here at Grace to share the greatest news ever told, to let the lion out of the cage and to see what you, Father, will do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.